Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Like I said earlier, I've been quiet and in bed for three days, so... I'm sort of feeling like I should just lie down here and uh, everyone else can talk. Um, So there's an old Zen saying that the whole world is upside down. That from ordinary perspective, uh, everything we're doing is all upside down. Uh, what we think of as permanent is not really so permanent. And the things that we invest in so that they're reliable uh, prove in the long run to be unreliable. There's a wonderful teaching by the forest teacher uh, from Thailand, Ajahn Chah, who picks up a teacup and says, this teacup is broken. And I think that this is a good practice for all of us. When you buy a new car, you should just look at it gleaming in your driveway and say, it's broken. And then, when it breaks down, it'll just, you'll know that this is how cars are. And when you get a gleaming new husband or wife, you should look at them and say, oh, this is broken. <laughs> and then... Um, when it happens, and, and you see that um, uh, permanence is not as linear as we might think, um, then it will be okay. So this saying is really helpful, that the whole world is upside down. Uh, that it seems like the whole world is the opposite <laughs> of how it actually is. The ordinary way we look at things seems to be upside down. And there's a wonderful story about this, about an old teacher named Bird's Nest Roshi. And he would walk around in forests looking for trees that had abandoned bird's nests. And then when he found an abandoned bird's nest, he would climb the tree and he would go up into the bird's nest, and he would sit there and do his meditation practice in the nest in the tree. Can you imagine this? And he's old. Basically, the word Roshi just means old. Yeah. And um, one day, uh, a poet comes along named Su Shi, 
who's a Song Dynasty poet, who also was a government official. And the poet calls up to Bird's Nest Roshi and says, what are you doing up there? It's really, really dangerous. And he calls down and says, dangerous? Actually, what you're doing is really dangerous. Going around thinking things are permanent. (laughs) Relying on stuff to make you happy. Thinking that other people are going to satisfy you fully. The way you're living is really dangerous. It's much easier, he says, to just go out on a limb and meditate. (laughs) So I think this could be a really important teaching for all of us. It's really important to go out on a limb and meditate. So what is it to go out on a limb and meditate? Um, This is what we've been covering in Shantideva's text so far the Bodhisattva Charyavatara, which I guess this is supposed to be the fourth talk on, but I'm imagining it's just the second. Um, So in the first chapter of this text, we're told that the most precious thing we can have in our life is bodhicitta, is this desire to be awake this desire for awakening, this desire to awaken others, and this passion to awaken ourselves. Now, this is actually the the clearest and most profound gem anybody can discover in their own life. It's so important to have a livelihood that really affects positive change in the world. It's so important to have friendships that are loving and sustainable. It's important to have basic needs met where you can have a house, where you can practice, and enough leisure time, and so on. But the most important thing, according to Shantideva, is that you have bodhicitta, this passion to awaken. My son is nine years old now, and it's the first age where he's starting to, like, you know, go into his room for like hours at a time, or he sits down and I can't tell for the first time what he's feeling. So I worry about him. I don't worry about so many things, but I only worry about people. So sometimes I, you know, worry about him. And then one of the things that really helps me when I worry, oh, is this, you know, video game going to turn him into a terrible person when he's 20, you know? And one of the things I remember is that we all have this seed of this passion to awaken, bodhicitta. And I feel like what satisfies me as a worried parent sometimes is just to know uh, that he has that in him, that he will find that, that passion to awaken. And if if it sprouts, it's also a passion to awaken other beings, and a passion to awaken for other beings. So when I worry about him, that's what I try and remember. So it's said in this first chapter that the highest goal we can have is to be awake. And to see ourselves as a jewel 
in this vast, vast net. And I would say that this is all true, and it's very idealistic. That if you just treat interconnectedness as um, uh, a stretching of your imagination to include awakening for all beings, then it starts to hover in the conceptual realm. It can be a little bit sentimental, or just a good sentiment. And one of the ways that we get rooted in this first chapter of the text, which is this this, uh, passion for bodhicitta, is through the second chapter of the text, which is to ground our passion for awakening in an honest examination of where we're at in our lives and the actions that we take and the effect of those actions. So the first chapter could be titled Awakening, and the second chapter could just be titled Confession. To really feel the profound human possibility of awakening uh, can easily become too glossy if it's not grounded in the ability to look deeply at our misdeeds. Just look at today. Or look at this week. Or look at this year. Saying things not at the right time. Acting out not in a skillful way with our body or with our words or just spinning old stories in your own mind that cause so much harm and contribute to fear. We're doing it now. And now. All of us. So, if we can't see how we harm, bodhicitta is a joke. We need to confess, and we need to take full responsibility. There have been misdeeds, and there continue to be misdeeds. We make mistakes. And last week I talked about forgiveness. And one thing that occurs to me when I think about forgiveness is that the self has built into it um, the, the nature of being unforgiving. The self is unforgiving. Because this self that we are just wants to stay addicted to a worldview that makes it seem like our actions are all good. And it's everyone else's fault, especially our parents. Or maybe you feel guilty, or maybe you feel shame. And maybe it's very hard for you to say that you need help. Or maybe it's very hard for you to say 
that you want to confess something and you want somebody else just to witness it. Not to help you, not to give advice, but just to witness it. I don't think we can do it alone. So, um, when I'm reading this chapter, I see that there are sort of four stages uh, of confession. And I'm just making this up. This isn't, they're not really in there, but it seems to be what, I, what I'm reading. Uh, the first is, the chapter starts off by calling on all Buddhas to just be a witness to Shantideva. Just, and it's written in the first person. So he's saying, I'm calling all Buddhas to just be a witness, to be present for me. And the second stage is to then make offerings to all of those Buddhas. And if you've read this chapter, the offerings are really kind of wild. Um, offerings of the most precious baths with jewels and it, it's all it's Lotus Sutra like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think we all can do this, you know, and you think about what you have um, and what you can give, you start to see it's, it's, we're so invested in the having and the keeping and not the giving. It's so hard sometimes just to give things away. But the first thing we do when we have a witness is we then make an offering to that witness so they can be present. The third stage is to prepare your heart to receive that there's a witness there. Just because there's a witness there, it doesn't mean you can take them in. It doesn't mean you can really receive their presence. You might actually be fighting their presence. I remember when I first started uh, working as a psychotherapist, my supervisor said, The tendency in therapy is what happens is the first day the patient comes and they unload everything that they need to work with. And then your job is to spend the next few years handing it back to them really slowly. And if you hand it back too quick, they'll run away. Because they know you handing it back is what they need. Right? This is the witnessing but you can't do it so fast. You have to hold it for them to help them digest something. So to prepare your heart to receive a witness and know they're there, the fourth stage, to look inside of your own heart and say, yes, it's true, and I admit it, and I offer it to you. So yes, it's true, this is what I've done. I admit it. And now, um, I'm not going to hold on to it. I'm offering it to you. And the fifth stage is really simple. It's just, forgive me. And then the chapter heads into a whole section about death and dying, saying, and you better get on this, (laughs) because you're going to die. And the time of death uh, is totally unknown. And I think this is so opposite to how we function as good capitalists. Because we're consuming and we're producing 
Um, but I don't think we think of offering our lives or offering ourselves. I remember a few years ago on retreat, the place that I sat during retreat was right in front of the altar. And I just became obsessed with the altar. I was obsessed with the flowers and the candle. And then one day it occurred to me that the altar, our altar's not set up yet, but the altar is all about offering. The candle offers itself, the flowers offer themselves, the Buddha offers him or herself, the incense is burning, offering scent and fire and smoke to us. So how can I sit on my cushion in the same way that the Buddha is sitting on the altar? Not to copy the Buddha, not sometimes helpful, but also to make of my practice a kind of offering. And when you can feel that in your body, then when you screw up, it becomes a little bit easier to offer yourself. Even if there's some shame, even if there's some guilt. And I think the best way to to feel this is to be by yourself. Have time every week when you can be alone. I don't get enough of this. Where you can be alone and get into the place where you're raw. Maybe there's a phase before that of kind of feeling lonely or feeling anxious. And then in that really honest place, uh, reflect on your actions and the effects of your actions. Just of that week. It doesn't have to be so grand. You don't, it doesn't have to be like Yom Kippur where you wait for one day of the year and you fast, you know. And go all the way with it. Go all the way. I was, I, I was talking about Peter Levitt earlier. I, he says something really nice about going all the way. He says, it's like you're in a forest and you come across a bear. What do you do? The bear is you, right? It's your spirit. Well, you don't run away. You just hug the bear. And you hug the bear like crazy and you don't let it go. That's how you practice. Well, I hope I'm never caught in a forest with Peter. But he's a great poet. (laughs) One of the practices that we focus on a lot at Center of Gravity is in yoga practice to inhale and exhale in a way where you really finish your inhale and you truly finish your exhale. And the exhale is just like soft dynamite, the bottom of your exhale. And it just quietly breaks up rigid plates in your pelvic floor, old emotions, maybe emotions that are ancestral, old ideas that are just at the level between language and sensation. And you exhale and you go all the way down there. The person I study yoga with taught me a practice that I was just remembering this week 
where you exhale and you completely finish your exhale. And you do this over and over until you're really stable, really calm. And then you exhale and you pause for a while at the end of your exhale. And that could take just a month to work on. And then you exhale again and you pause for a while at the end of your exhale. And then once you can get good at that, you exhale and then in the pause you swallow and you feel and you visualize your saliva dropping down. And every day, if you keep doing this every day, eventually you can feel your saliva dropping all the way down to your pelvic floor, all the way down to Mulabandha. And on the way, the idea is that your saliva, when you visualize it, will attract to it all of the emotions and all of the old holding patterns that you tend to avoid but that it does it at a physiological level. So basically, what it tends to create for the first few months of practice is squirming. You exhale, you start to feel the saliva go down, and then you just want to get out of there. And then the getting out of there starts to seem really interesting. So I once asked him about that, and I said, there's a lot of squirminess. And he said, oh, yeah, you escape from the present moment right into the present moment. Which is basically like saying, just stay with it. So as we explored last week, we really need to feel our way into our lives so that we know what we feel so forgiveness is possible. Otherwise, it's all wrapped up in reconciliation. Not in what's really going on for us, but in wanting to make things better. So, the text says, this is a 28th paragraph. Throughout beginningless cyclic existence, in this life, and in others, unknowingly, I committed transgressions and I ordered them to be done by others. That's a pretty powerful thing to say. Unknowingly, I committed transgressions and ordered them to be done by others. This reminds me a lot of, uh, I studied uh, three times just very short retreats with uh, this old teacher named Kempo Tsultrum. And uh, one time, I, I don't even remember what I was asking him. I don't remember the question at all. All I remember is what he said. He said, you've been your mother, and you've been your father, and you've been a murderer, and you've been a merchant, and he went on and on and on and on and on. I felt like it was the only English he really had these sentences were so clear. And I remember not really connecting with it at the time. But then, after a while, starting to stretch my imagination and realize, all of us have been all these people. If you can really allow your heart to open, you can be the bank teller. You can be the person driving the streetcar. You can be someone hobbling along with a cane. 
Because otherwise what happens is with forgiveness or confession, we say, I haven't killed anyone this year. I haven't stolen anything this year. I haven't lied this week. But then, actually, when you stretch it out to include the fact that you're also the person driving that car, and you're also the person next to me, and also the person at the back of the room, and also a man, and also a woman, we can start to say, we've killed this year. We've stolen this year. And then all of our personal blindness just becomes one blindness. And then we acknowledge that. If you have um, um, a sense that you have a clear conscience all the time, then you don't understand karma. Karma is that there's actions you do, and so many of them are from beginningless time, meaning uh, they didn't start in your lifetime. They're habits you act out that you might not even see. And also, it's said here, unknowingly. Or, and this last line is really powerful, or you've unknowingly ordered them to be done by others. Every time you put money in the bank, in Canada, I forget what the percentage is, but it's like something like three quarters of the money invested by banks is in mining. So you deposit that check from your, you know, from some company in this building that does really good stuff. You put it in the bank, and it supports mining. And there's some part of us that doesn't want to look at that. It's just too big. overwhelmed by the deception of ignorance I rejoiced in what was done so I benefited from what was done but now seeing these mistakes from my heart I confess them to all these witnesses that's powerful I was saying you know from all these misdeeds we've done as a culture we've really benefited How many of us in this room have really benefited? And also to recognize the shadow of that. And to let that be seen. It's not saying you have to do something about it right away. It's not saying you have to completely change your life. It's just to acknowledge it. Um, And then it goes on to talk about sin and evil. And uh, Stephen Batchelor, many of you know this, loves to talk about sin and evil. Uh, and I think most of us who are, you know, Buddhists and good yogis, we like to pretend that there's no sin and no evil in Buddhist practice. But there is. Um, it's just that in Christianity, when we think of confession, we think of confession because of sin. But in Buddhism, sin is not permanent. It's impermanent, conditioned, and empty. So sin is a realm. It's a hell realm. And a hell realm is good for you. 
And usually addiction is talked about as being in a hell realm. And the good news about hell realms is that they're impermanent. They're not fixed. So uh, a hell realm is a gymnasium. And it's a place where you work out those addictive patterns that you've knowingly or unknowingly acted out or acted in. Blamed out or blamed in. Harmed in an outward way or harmed in an inward way. And you work them out in that realm. And if all goes well, you can get up to a new realm. However, most of us have to spend like eons in a hell realm. And you can be, and they're impermanent. So you can be in a hell realm for a few hours. You can be in a hell realm for a few years, but they're not fixed. You could say to yourself next time you're in a hell realm, like maybe you're in a greed hell realm. Does anybody know the greed realm or the envy realm? And you can just say to yourself, I'm in the greed gymnasium. I'm in the envy gymnasium. And I'm going to work out my greed muscles. And I'm going to learn also their antagonist pattern. So I can shut them off. Uh, then it says, uh, line 30, or paragraph 33. <clears throat> oh, and the other thing is, in, 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 in Buddhist practice, the hell realms also have a sense of humor. Like if you ever look at the art, especially Tibetan art, where they really glorify the hell realms, uh, there's, it, it's quite, there's a lot of really comical scenes in them that are, that are really you know, interesting. And they should have the appropriate amount of terror. So it should be like this ratio all the time. And addiction's a little like this, isn't it? It's like there's some element of comedy and a greater element of terror. The untrustworthy Lord of Death, which basically means, I love the untrustworthy, such a strange translation, but basically means you don't know when it's coming, waits not for things to be done or undone, whether I'm sick or healthy, This fleeting lifespan is unstable. Leaving all, I depart alone. Yet, through not having understood this, I commit various kinds of wrongdoing for the sake of my friends and foes. But my foes will become nothing. My friends will become nothing. And then I, too, will become nothing. It's kind of interesting. I spent a lot of time on this paragraph today, thinking about it. This idea that you've acted out your misdeeds against your friends. And you've thought so much about how it has hurt your friends. But also there's a point where you have to just go, okay, this is what I've done, and my friends are going to die. And maybe your friends die before you, and then when you die, all that's left, is your experience. And out there, the effect of your actions. But your friends may not be there anymore. 
all that's left is the residue from your friendship in your heart. And when you die, the only thing I know about when you die is that you really meet your own heart and what's there. Everything else, for me, is speculative. But in being with a couple people who've died, that's one thing that I've seen that's absolutely true, is when you're dying, if you're clear, you will see what's in your heart. And it's interesting, when someone's dying, you can get right in their face, and they won't even notice in the last breaths before they die, because they've gone so inward. You really die alone. You can be right there holding someone's hand, but at the end, they don't know you're there anymore. They go so far in, totally alone. Maybe their experience of it is not being alone. That's just how we would talk about it or how I talk about it. Because I don't know what it is. So I think that's what this, this section is saying. And then it's saying, the, the chapter continues, that this whole process of realizing the truth of your death and dying and confessing because of that is taking refuge. It's taking refuge in the Buddha, your capacity to be awake. It's taking refuge in the Dharma, which is what you're awake to. And it's taking refuge in Sangha. It's taking refuge in community. Taking refuge. Sadhanam. Taking refuge. Uh, Dogen said something about taking refuge. He says, in Japanese, the term to take refuge is ki. I'm probably not pronouncing that right. Uh, it's made up of two characters. The first character, this is Dogen talking, is ki, which means to keep returning to. And the second character, e, means to submit ourselves in a devoted way. Isn't that beautiful? Thus, taking refuge literally means to devote yourself to returning to. Which is kind of what it's like in English, right? Re is to return, and fuge is fugitive. So it's like that part of you that's a fugitive wants to run away, and that part of you that can return. And then Dogen says, in other words... The term is synonymous with being rescued or freed. The Buddha is a master, and we take refuge in the Buddha. The Dharma is good spiritual medicine, so we take refuge in the Dharma. And the Sangha are excellent spiritual friends, so we take refuge in them. I like that. We take refuge in them. But I think what's most important here is this process of refuge not as being a place, but as a process of coming home, as a process of returning, as a process of coming back to honesty and the earth. Um, I, I was learning from... Uh, 
Karina and I are taking this hypnobirthing class. And what, it's so cool. It's kind of embarrassing because we're like keeners there. So there's all these people in the, in the class are kind of like taking a few notes or whatever. And we're, you know, answering every question. And <laughs> it's really, really good. Some, sometimes I think it's upset the group. We're, <laughs> we're planning on we're, we're planning on having a home birth, and 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 most of the people in the class are all planning on hospital births. And so the first day, they went around the room and they said, uh, "So has anyone here taken a visit of their hospital yet to check out the hospital?" And the first person said, no, not really. The second person says, no, we haven't gone yet for the hospital visit. The next person, yeah, we've gone for the hospital visit. And then Karina's turn. She says, I'd rather give birth in the car. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways. So, it's a little embarrassing being in that class. Um, But anyways, one of the things we've been learning about is called stretch and sweep. I love the name, stretch and sweep. It's exactly what it sounds like. So, um, it's used sometimes to induce labor. And what happens is, is the midwife uh, puts uh, a finger inside the cervix and stretches it out and then sweeps, uh, creating a separation between the membrane and the cervix. Right? And sometimes this mechanically induces labor, but it also creates uh, prostaglandins, which help the whole labor process occur. And um, <clears throat> don't try and look up prostaglandins on Wikipedia. <laughs> You can spend a whole afternoon there. Um, Anyways, um, so uh, I've been sick in bed, and so once in a while, so that I don't complain, um, I'll just close my eyes and start to follow my breath, just practice mindfulness of breathing. And every time I started to do that, I kept having these visions of stretch and sweep. (laughs) And then it really worked. I started to think that actually... Mindfulness practice is stretch and sweep because you're basically you're you're following your breath and you're going back and forth along the cervix of your mind and then you've got this like all these stuck things you know like this one thought that keeps haunting you worry about my son you know whatever my mind goes to and then I just take the breath and I just stretch it and I just sweep it and then it produces these like psychic prostaglandins, which just help me relax all my birthing muscles. So anyways, highly recommended. But what it made me think about, I shouldn't be saying all this. <laughs> what it made me think about is taking refuge. Because in a way, it's helpful not to think just the formality of taking refuge, but also think that Every time you're not running away, stuck into some old psychic pattern that is rigid and repetitive and compulsive and has such a strong purchase on you, that you can find the breath and you can just stretch and sweep. It's so beautiful. And um, 
then you can separate a little. You can get just the right distance from what haunts you. Just the right distance from guilt or anxiety or shame that you can just see its repetitiveness, see its power. And that's taking refuge. And it's really important you do this for others, not just for yourself. And according to this chapter, it's really important you do this because you're going to die. So um, the last thing I'll say is there is a meditation that you can do that is uh, hinted at at the end of the second chapter, which is a traditional Theravadan meditation. It goes like this. Uh, The first part is you say to yourself, death is certain. Nobody escapes death. The way that I say this to myself is nobody gets out of here alive. The second, and, and so, so the way you can do this is at home, you find your breath, practice mindfulness of breathing, and wait 10 minutes until you're really calm, and then introduce this. Death is certain. And, and just check that out. Maybe there'll be something, maybe there won't. And if you start going off with it, then just come back to mindfulness of breathing and don't, don't follow it. It's just to kind of open up a space for prostaglandins. And then the second uh, slogan is, the time of death is uncertain. Another way of saying that is, nobody can know when. You can't know. And the third part of that practice is when the time of death comes, nobody comes with me. I go alone. It's kind of interesting with all this focus we have on relationship and even how the body, when you die, goes back into relationship with the elements and with the earth and water, and minerals. And at the same time, uh, in that process of dying, you also go alone. You don't get to take anything with you. Just think about that. Consider that. You don't get to take anybody with you. We work so hard We try so hard to have good relationships. And in the end, you don't get to take those with you. So the third one, when the time of death comes, I will go alone. Nobody can help me. The only thing I can affect are the actions of my body, speech, and mind. The way it relates to this chapter is because the only thing that I can influence is the actions of my body, speech, and mind, I have to let go of unwholesome thoughts or let go of 
thoughtlessness. And anybody who's tried to let go of thoughtlessness knows it's a lot of work to see where you're thoughtless, where your practice is just slipping. So taking refuge is immediate. It has to do with stopping, allowing, confession, being able to be witnessed. I don't know about you, but sometimes I spend so much time making sure that somebody can witness me and that they're going to be good enough. And I miss the fact that actually the real work is for me just to be able to be witnessed. So many students who are working so hard trying to find the perfect teacher. But the real work is actually to be a perfect student. Which means letting yourself be a student. Instead of focusing so much on the perfect teacher. And teachers are unreliable anyways. Um, In Sanskrit, uh, every day in the Theravada tradition, or in Pali rather, um, there's a chant you do some of you might know it, where you say, Buddham saranam gachami, dhammam saranam gachami, sangam saranam gachami. Gachami means to go. Uh, Saranam, or in Sanskrit, sharanam, means to take refuge. Uh, But in Sanskrit and Pali, the word saranam or sharanam doesn't just mean to take refuge. That's the English translation of a verb which is to protect. So taking refuge also means to be protected. To come back to your breath in a moment of frustration. To come back to your breath is to be protected. And to protect others. And there's this new Sanskrit dictionary that's online that the University of Cologne in Germany is working on. It's incredible. And uh, so I looked up the word shadanam today, and it says it's a verb. It means to be protected. And the other thing it means is autumn wind. Isn't that beautiful? Autumn wind. So I would translate this as... uh, Buddha, I go to autumn wind. Dharma, I go to the autumn wind. Sangha, I go to the autumn wind. I like that. To me, I I can feel that. It's nice to think about the autumn wind when we're in Farch. Which is this two-month period, really, of the doldrums, which I think should just be turned into one month. Why not? We could do it. We could start it in Toronto. We could do anything here. Can't even kick our mayor out. But we can. 
change the calendar. <clears throat> Anyways, does anybody have anything they'd like to share or add for a couple minutes before we before we finish? We're all witnessing you. Yeah. yeah What's your name? My name is Miriam. Miriam. Yeah, I really would like to say thank you um, because you reminded me when you said that um, you're waiting for the perfect teacher or for the perfect witness, and it hit me like home directly because I had this actually last week where I wanted to confess and there was a witness. And I was always analyzing the witness. <laughs> and when you said it, it was like, oh, man. <laughs> so um, I thank you for reminding me. <laughs> yeah, and it went off like a light bulb. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. I've never been to confession in the Catholic tradition. But I would love that to go into a room with someone who has some sympathy for you and who just really hears you and then um, you don't get in trouble. <laughs> a few years ago, many of you were here, we brought, uh, Karina and I organized to bring some of the monks from Burma who helped start the revolution there in Rangoon. And... Uh, anybody, how many people were there? Some of you were there. And you remember their bodies and their faces, and they have post-traumatic stress disorder written all over them, you know. And um, then one day we went walking. They really liked Chinatown because they said it really reminded them of uh, being home. And uh, we were walking one day, and I said, how do you deal with... Um, what you've seen. How do you deal with it? Here we would send people to a counselor or whatever. And they said, oh, once every month we sit in a circle, all of us in our sangha, and we just say out loud uh, anything that we've done that's been a misdeed or any way what we've experienced has caused us to act out something. And everybody just listens and no matter what you've done, you won't get in trouble. And then I said, that sounds like a practice we should do as a sangha. And he said, that's a really good idea. And then we walked together quietly for a few blocks, looking at weird sardines and mushrooms and things. <laughs> and then he said, oh, and one more thing. When you do it, it should be twilight. I thought that was a nice detail. That when you sit together and you do this exercise, it should be twilight. Something about confession that's so powerful. To say something and not be analyzed. Shima. I just wanted to say, I, I recently had a meeting with a couple of Sangha people. Just a couple. And, um, you know, you're talking about the formality of that practice. Yeah. And what I've been thinking about um, taking refuge in the Sangha, mm -hmm. you know, often what happens is there's a discussion of, you know, all the annoying things that people do and how that could be a potential to wake you up or yeah. to keep you alert in life. And, but what I found was interesting and, and I think is a, a nice practice is just 
hanging out with mm. other people who practice mm. because it happens naturally like yeah. this kind of reflection yeah you know if I were spending time or hanging out with say friends who aren't practicing those things might come up but they come up in such a way that I don't necessarily see them in the context of practice but right. being in the context of some other people who do practice mm-hmm. um, people in, in, in this group that I was in were finding things that maybe would be actually quite painful to realize about oneself in a social setting, mm. but having that witness aspect actually mm. made it more of like a common denominator. Mm. Like, yes, right, we do this. You do right. this, and I do this. Yeah. Whereas if we're on our own, or in a context without practitioners, we might have more of a tendency to twist it into yeah. ourselves and take it a little more uh-huh. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, I don't know if anyone noticed, but we have a kitchen here. So after class, we should just hang hang out together as much as possible. Or if you're awkward hanging out with other people, just do the dishes. <laughs> that's what I do. Thank you, Simone. Anybody else? Um, so somebody once somebody told me recently that I should just like say what I mean and not think about it in in my head before I actually say it. So I've been trying this quite a bit in my life. Yeah. It's just been um, I keep on thinking it like it's like a creative project or like it's like some sort of a project, but it's really forced me to like sit down and, and look at all the all the ways that I feel like I've messed up on a weekly uh-huh. basis. Yeah. And I had a point, but I a lot Say com- what you mean. I <laughs> a lot comes up. I mess up a lot. Yeah. And to really just like leave space for that without needing to be like perfect in some sort of way. Mm-hmm. Um is really interesting, and it's actually forced me to really look at my practice because um, I never used to say what I knew. And when I first started practicing here, I was all into mindfulness practice so that everything that I said was super calculated and actually a little bit passive-aggressive. And now just to say what I mean and to know that there's a consequence of that, saying it in that particular way, is really hard. There's this phrase I really like that I've been hearing lately called the stink of mindfulness. <laughs> Something about it I like. When uh, we're not being ourselves, we're trying to be mindful. It's an interesting balance. Thank you. One more comment, question, something. I have a question. Yeah? Um, earlier you made a distinction or a reference between reconciliation versus forgiveness. Oh, yeah. Can you just elaborate on that? Oh, we did that last week. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, la- la- I actually was kind of referring to last week, but last week I was trying to separate out forgiveness and reconciliation. I think we mix those up too quickly. 
where we start to stop and feel uh, maybe the effect of an event that's happened to us or some conflict with someone. And as we start thinking, or, or if the idea of forgiveness is introduced, immediately we just focus all our attention on the other person. And how, oh, how am I going to forgive them? Is that just allowing them to get away with what they got away from? Uh, or, and so on. Or if they're dead, you know, how does this work? So I think sometimes it's helpful to separate forgiveness and reconciliation. So that recon- forgiveness has to happen before there can be some reconciliation. And first of all, we have to forgive ourselves. We have to allow ourselves to feel what we feel so that we can learn how to possibly communicate that. But if we're too quick just to jump into reconciliation, then uh, we can miss all that. And the reconciliation's paper thin, I think. So, something to contemplate. I'm sure if you read the blog, there's a whole section on this. There will be. As soon as it's up. Okay, so let's stand up.